The reading is taken from Titus um, and it can be found on page 1198 and we're beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. You, however, must teach what is appropriate and sound to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Janet. Do keep that one open in front of you if you can for the next few minutes. That would be great. Uh, I wonder if, um, if someone told you that, um, that they had been sent to Crete to plant a new church congregation, you might think that was living the dream, mightn't you? It's um, probably a bit like the reaction that I know some friends of ours used to get a few years ago when they went as mission partners to the Seychelles. You know, it's hard not to imagine that, that <laughs> some of the other benefits of being in a place like that, isn't it? But for Titus, for, for Paul's young friend and colleague in ministry, uh, this was not an easy place to be. It was quite a tough posting. Uh, a hard culture for the, for the gospel to take root in lots of different ways. So Titus' job, which Paul is writing to him about here in this letter, is to oversee this young church 
and it was no easy task, and it's a really good place for us to spend some time as we think about the task that we've been given of beginning a new worshipping community over in Thermiston. So here in Titus chapter 2, on page 1198, and what Paul is basically saying in this part of his short letter is that when we're shaped by the good news of Jesus Christ, our lives will be countercultural. People will notice that there is something different if that is what is happening in our lives. Uh, It works like this. You may well remember a couple of weeks ago, right back at the beginning of the letter, Paul wrote about how the truth produces godliness. That as people turn to Jesus and learn about him, it changes how they live. It makes a difference. Well, chapter 2 answers the next question, which follows on from this. Well, what difference does this godliness have in the long run? It says to us, if truth leads to godliness, then godliness, living Christ-shaped lives, will lead us to look different so that, verse 10, so that in every way the teaching about God our Saviour will be made attractive. See, it's, it's... striking lives, different lives, Paul is saying, which will show people how amazing Jesus is, how amazing the good news about him is. So there are two things that I'd particularly like us to think about today as we reflect on this passage, and uh, we're going to spend most of our time on the first one. I say that to you by way of warning at the outset. Uh, The first one is this. Living well is counter-cultural, particularly looking at the first ten verses. Um, you may know this, I don't know, the city of Austin in Texas is a city which apparently, where people who live there, they pride themselves on being different, different to the rest of the state, to kind of having their own subculture. And uh, the kind of slogan which appears in all kinds of things around the city, I gather, I've never been there, is this, keep Austin weird. I want to say in some ways that would not be a bad strap line for us as as a church, for the church in general, or for this one in particular, keep the church weird. But often what we try to do is the opposite of that, isn't it? Um, there is a, there's a common misunderstanding today in, in the church in how evangelism works. You've probably come across this. It's not a new thing. What we think sometimes, and to be quite honest, I catch myself thinking this. It's not me pointing the finger at other people particularly. What we think is that if we can just get people to like us, then maybe they'll want to join us. The temptation then is to to try and be popular. Um, That if somehow people approve of of the church and of how we live, then they might become Christians. Uh, We need the church, people sometimes say, to become more relevant. Thinking that the more we can fit in with the culture around us, with, with how people live, well, the more likely our friends and neighbors might be to take us seriously. Now, that's a tempting thing for us, I think, because it's much more comfortable, isn't it, if we fit in, you know, if our morals don't look strange and and a bit out of step. um, Most of us don't want our friends to think that we're weird. We want them to think that we're reasonable, just like everybody else. The problem is that in practice, the result of all of this is the opposite from what we might hope, because, well, as the church in Britain in the last, I don't know, half century has demonstrated, the more the church tries to blend in with the surrounding culture and to absorb the the priorities and the values of the world, the more it leads to people looking at us and thinking, well, if the only difference Christianity makes is that you're the same as everybody else, you just have to go to church on Sunday, 
then I think I'll pass, if that's all right. Now, of course, there is some truth in wanting to be relevant. I need to note that. You know, the, the truth is that the church should certainly not be out of touch with its context. If we cut ourselves off from the places where we live, then how can we ever hope to connect with anyone? Paul was certainly not out of touch, was he? If you read his letters or his sermons in the book of Acts, he knew the culture that he was in. He's certainly well aware of what Crete is like in this letter. So we shouldn't be out of touch, but we do need to be ready to be out of step quite often. Because what Paul is saying here is that if we allow the truth to shape how we live, do you know what? Sometimes people will not think how cool and relevant we are. Sometimes they will just notice that we're a bit weird. And that's the calling of the church, which is emphasized here in Titus 2, to look different, but in such a faithful way, such a godly way, that people can't help notice, that people start to think things like, you know, I don't really understand my Christian neighbor, and I definitely don't agree with some of her views, but she does have integrity. You know, she's good, she's kind, I know I could trust her. And you know what, some of what she says does make some sense to me. Which is sometimes not a comfortable way to live, but it is how God works. And we see it here in verses 1 to 10. Now Paul starts and finishes what he says in the whole of his chapter, uh, like this, in verse 1 he says, Titus, you must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And then in verse 15, right at the end, he says, these then are the things you should teach. So he's giving a real challenge to Titus, a challenge to any of us who find ourselves in a teaching position. Maybe you're a home group leader, youth leader, uh, whatever it might be, to be prepared to teach what is right and good, whether it's popular or not. And then in between, he gives these specific instructions to particular groups of people, older men and women, younger men and women, even slaves. And so there's all kinds of questions for us in here, aren't there? But first of all, notice that the repeating phrase in this passage is, so that. Three times Paul says it. He says, live these lives of godliness, verse 5, so that no one will malign the word of God. Verse 8, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And all about ensuring our lives are consistent with the truths about Jesus, so that no one can point out the inconsistencies, can say, well, you're just a bunch of hypocrites, aren't you? I don't want anything to do with this Jesus, if that's how his people live. But instead are intrigued by how compelling, and yes, sometimes how weird these Christians are. And then these verses, as I said, look at how different members of the household should live. When we get to chapter 3, there's more of a focus on, on living in the kind of public arena. We'll get to that. But I do want to say, actually, these categories, kind of public and household, don't map neatly onto what we might call work and, and home or whatever it might be. Because in the first century world, the household, for many people, was where they went to work. And it wasn't just the place where people came home to, you know, have dinner and go to bed. Um, something like 20 or 30% of people across the Roman Empire were slaves. Many of them had household roles. That was their work, which didn't necessarily mean they were cleaners or gardeners. Might have meant they were working as a, as a secretary in the, in the family business, on the, working on the family farm, whatever it might be. 
Likewise, when verse 5 speaks about younger women in the church being busy at home, that is not a euphemism for saying, go and wash the dishes or do the baking. It's just as likely to be about working in the family business, the family trade, um, whatever that role might be. All of that said, of course, there are still some jarring cultural issues going on here, aren't there? Different instructions given to men and women. But what Paul is doing here is, first of all, recognizing that there are different pressures, unique things which are hard for different groups of people in the society. And secondly, applying the need to, to live countercultural lives in that setting so that the good news of Jesus is shown in everyone's lives. So that's the principle. Whatever position you find yourself in, older woman, younger man, slave, free, whatever it might be, what do you need to do to live a good life which points people to Jesus? Uh, we perhaps shouldn't be too quick to dismiss the idea that the particular challenges will vary according to things like our age and our sex and our family situation. Um, we live in a culture with very different assumptions about some of these things in the Roman world in the first century, don't we? But it's still true to say that the pressures on the young are sometimes different to those on the old, sometimes uh, on women, different to those that may be on men. And what Paul is writing here is to speak into a culture rather than just to ignore it. So when he gives instructions to slaves here, he's not saying being a slave is a good thing. He's not talking about whether slavery is right or wrong. There's plenty about that elsewhere in the Bible. He's simply saying um, to, to help slaves who have come to faith in Christ, this is how you should live, to live your faith out wisely, just as he's doing for everyone else. And there are a lot of things in here. We don't have time to look at them all in detail. But two key things which come out through all of these verses as he speaks to these different groups uh, would, be, would be these ones. The first one is there's a seriousness about what he says, isn't there? He talks about being sober-minded, temperate, verse 2, not addicted to wine, showing seriousness, verse 7. Um, the other one is self-control. says it three times, verses 2, 5, and 6. Both of them sound really boring, don't they? Serious and self-control, that's not exciting, is it? It's not very glamorous. But actually... Being serious is uh, what 2 verse 12 says about saying no to ungodliness and, and worldly passions. It means not taking your faith lightly, but actually living as though it matters, expecting it to shape our, our lives. It's not saying you shouldn't have a sense of humor. It's saying you should be committed to this. It is important. And self-control may not sound very exciting, might even sound boring, but of course the opposite is being out of control, isn't it? And that's not good for anybody. It's the woman, verse 3, who is known as a gossip and a busybody, can't control her tongue. It's the man, verse 2 or verse 6, who comes home drunk and mistreats his family. Don't be like that, is what Paul is saying. If you're not in control, no one can trust you. And then these two themes are unpacked in all of the other instructions that are here. Um, Paul starts with how the older men in the church should live, then the older women. Sadly, older in this context probably means over 40. So that puts me firmly into that category. You can work out where you would sit. Uh, and to the older men, though, Paul says, be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. And to the women, be reverent in living, 
not slanderers or heavy drinkers, but those who teach what is good. I want to say those are still good priorities for us, aren't they? And again, while the particular expected roles of what women and men in the 21st century may do in their lives are very different, I think we should certainly notice that the instructions to older believers here are, verse 4, so that they can train the younger ones. Um, because there's nothing worse, is there, than an aging Christian who has who's grown cynical and bitter, is angry with the church, always complaining about things. But on the flip side, what a joy it is. Isn't it wonderful when, when, when you meet an older Christian who's still on fire for Jesus after many years of following him? There's almost nothing that I find more encouraging. We all need someone to look up to in the faith, don't we, and to encourage us along the way someone who's been there. And I think there's a great principle there of being Christians who can encourage those who are a life stage younger than us. And the older we get, the more encouraging, I guess, we've potentially got to do. But it applies to all of us, right down to you know, the, the teenagers, the, the pathfinders and, and snug members who are able to help on a holiday club or help with explorers or whatever it might be. Uh, there are probably people at St. Luke's who immediately we mentioned planting, thought to themselves... I'm too old for that. I can't go and be part of what's going on in Thermiston. I'm too old to plant. I want to suggest that Paul would, su would say otherwise. There may be different reasons why it's not right for you to join that team, but it's not your age that matters most. It's your character. And that's what um, Ben spoke about last week. If you are here, if you haven't heard his sermon, it's well worth taking 20 minutes to listen to on our website. Uh, you may be thinking, what have I got to offer a church planting team? What have I got to offer St. Luke's? What you've got is a life shaped by the gospel and something to say about Jesus. That's all you need. There are instructions for younger men, younger women in verses 5 to 8, and we'll need to think about how we work out the specifics. But don't lose the purpose here. It's all so that the example we set brings honor to Jesus. And while thankfully none of us may find ourselves enslaved this morning, if Paul can say these things to those who are, in verses 9 to 10, you know, to, to be trustworthy, not to steal, then, well, surely those of us who are employed ought to manage to do at least that as well. So home group leaders, there is a lot here which needs further unpacking. Uh, you've got plenty to get your teeth into when you look at this passage later on this week. Um, some of the things are quite hard things around self-control, around alcohol, around how husbands and wives relate to one another. But they're all about bringing glory to Jesus. But I want to finish with a brief second point. Um, we've said that living well is countercultural. I'm conscious that the danger with a passage like this is that it can seem very much like, role, like rules. And the last thing I want is for someone to leave church this morning with the idea that what Rob has said to us is, go away and try harder. Go and do better. Because it's hard to think of a more depressing sermon than one that says that. And it's really important that we see in those last five verses that living well is all about the gospel of Jesus. Now, what do I mean by this? Very quickly, two things. Uh, first of all, the good news about Jesus is all about grace. You know, when you read a list like the one in, in verses 1 to 10, you probably feel a bit of a failure. I certainly do. It's very easy to do that. We need the reminder, verse 11, that the good news of Jesus is not about our works, it's about his grace. For the grace of God has appeared, 
that offers salvation to all people. That's how we were saved. It's how we're still saved. The gospel, which means the good news of Jesus, points us to his grace. He gave himself to redeem us and to purify us. Verse 14. We're waiting in the certain hope that he will return in glory. Verse 13. And in the meantime, we live in response to this. Verse 10, so that in every way the gospel of Jesus will be seen in its beauty. The gospel is about the grace which is able to put failures back on their feet. The gospel of Jesus, the good news about Jesus is about grace. And therefore, secondly, it's by grace that Jesus makes a difference in our lives. This is not a call to just try harder. Don't leave church this morning thinking that. Look again at verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, verse 11. What difference does it make? Verse 12, this grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and godly lives in this age. So there's a world of difference between what we easily think Paul is saying here. You're supposed to be a Christian, Pull yourselves together and and do it better, will you? Stop living like that and live like this. No, that's not what he's saying to us. What he's actually saying is, come to Jesus. Be filled with his spirit. And he will begin to teach you how to live. And he will do that from the inside out. He will begin to change you. He won't condemn you. He'll pick you up when you fall and when you get it wrong. So that you're able to live more and more in the ways that Paul is commending here. And I want to say there is great freedom in this gospel. There is freedom in Jesus, because it doesn't fall on us, it falls on him. Which is why the only qualification to join his church is to come to Jesus on your knees. And if we're serious about that and ready to learn from Jesus about self-control, then we may look weird to our neighbours, But the good news will go out and Jesus will be glorified. Whether we're going to Thermiston to plant, whether we're here at St. Luke's building things up, and he gets the glory. Let's pray. We we thank you and we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are the God who loves your people, who calls us to live lives which may seem strange, but are all about demonstrating what you're like in your world. Uh, We thank you so much that you are the God who forgives us and lifts us up, doesn't expect us to perform, but is working on us day by day. And so once again, Lord, we're sorry for the times we've got this wrong, and we ask for your help and for the work of your Spirit in our lives, that the gospel might go out. In your name we pray. Amen.